Dear audience, it has become clear that we need to incentivise you. Uh, it's like getting blood out of stone with you guys. So <laughs> we need some more funds behind this podcast. It's, oh, it feels so tacky, having to always beg for money. Why do you make us do this? <laughs> um, okay, so we will do an ABBA mixtape if in the next week we can get Three. Ten. <laughs> ten. <laughs> okay. <laughs> ten. Ten. Ten new people subscribing. Yeah. Uh, we will do. We will do like an unsung boys deep ABBA mixtape. <laughs> we will just go for it. It'll be. It'll be something special. But it's only going to happen if between us all we can cajole some new people into sub, uh, subsidising the podcast. And that could well be you. You could be uh, an avid listener. If you stick a couple of bucks behind us, you'll get counted, and the whole world will get to benefit from our Swedish insight. So there you go. Uh, that's what you've got to look forward to if you have any faith in human nature if you don't have any faith in human nature then in two weeks time we will be doing a Nickelback special (laughs) yes (laughs) we'll figure out some other way to make your life miserable but we will, trust me, make your life miserable Uh, please, Mark where do they go? Well, before before I tell them where to go I I just want to say Chris is on to something here because we know you're out there (laughs) <laughs> we don't know who you are but we know you're out there <laughs> we've got your metadata <laughs> so we know you're listening and we know you're not giving us money and we don't always want money off you but help us out <laughs> go to unsung no go to patreon.com for slash unsung pod please and just look, I mean it'll be available in your local currency soon that's going to be changing yeah that's true patreon have uh, upped their game could be Swedish krona could be <laughs> it could be just pure meatballs, pure <laughs> IKEA meatballs. All right, we'll let you listen to the the episode now. Hey folks, welcome to the Unsung Podcast, I am your host, Mark Fraser, and I'm joined Guys, by... Guys, uh, just hang on, so this is a music podcast. Yeah, no, it's uh, not. And we <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it's tangentially about music. <laughs> we, we sometimes go pretty deep, so I'm gonna, I, I want to throw a deep cut at you. Have any of you boys ever heard of Radiohead? <laughs> oh, we are, we are going deep. Yeah. R-A-D-I-O-H-E-A-D. Uh, pretty cool shit. We're in the rabbit hole, we're going down the rabbit hole, yeah. Mm-hmm. Some obscure yeah, shit. How are you both anyway? Before we go down that rabbit hole, <laughs> I am currently unfucked with. <laughs> yeah, no rabbits. No rabbits. No, no holes. holes. <laughs> <laughs> social distancing, eh? Oh yeah. I I've been doing a lot of rabbits and holes. Um, mainly in a Q and on sense, though, not in a. Oh God! Hey, why do you do this to yourself? And because it's one of the most interesting things. Uh, of the modern era I I do, yeah I'm just amazed that you don't get so depressed by the human race no well see it. what it means is that when everybody else is getting shocked I'm not shocked so I, I dose my trauma yeah okay uh, I willingly absorb it at a, at a digestible rate over the course of the week so that when suddenly it flashes up in the news that somebody from QAnon tried to drive a train full of explosives into a 
bus full of school children or whatever, then I'm like, oh yeah, that's. Oh yeah. I was reading about that. Uh, <laughs> Brian. <laughs> well, so and, and it saves you the agony of you know people acting surprised after things like presidential debates, and you're like, okay, yeah. Uh, well, that's, that's what I expected. <laughs> kind of talking about on on that, I decided after about eight months. Well, actually, maybe it's been a year. I put my. Uh, Dab radio in the kitchen back from six music to radio four. I hate four. that word. I hate that word. DAB or radio? <laughs> <laughs> music. Dab head. Uh, I've put it back from uh, listening to six music when I cook dinner, which is all right later in the evening, although you have to make sure that you miss Steve Lamack. But I've put it back onto radio four just so I can actually keep up with the news and not avoid real life. And funnily enough, today. I turned it on at about midday and there was a documentary about Timothy McVeigh and right-wing militias and the Oklahoma bombings and I was like, well, this is interesting already. And then I noticed that they were using Earth, the band, as incidental music. They had um, some tracks off The Bees Make Honey and The Lion Skull. So, uh, better music on Radio 4 than Radio 6. Got a libertarian to soundtrack a libertarian terrorist. Yeah. It's like someone on the BBC thought about that. The BBC does not think of it music. <laughs> <laughs> Music's just something that happens to the BBC and it goes along with it and tries to not look stupid. I was actually, um, I read a thing about uh, how Q and how Facebook are completely failing, even though trying really hard, but completely failing to erase Q and on groups and stuff because people keep changing names and using like codes and all it, that. And it's but like, it's not difficult. It's yes, just that they've, yeah. got, they've got no real investment in finding out. I mean, I, if Facebook phoned me tonight, I could tell them, oh, by the way, if you ban QAnon, C-U-E-A-N-O-N as a hashtag, then that'll get rid of some of them. If you start monitoring the use of the the number 17, Mm -hmm. that'll get rid of some of them. I mean, it's not that difficult. (laughs) It's just... don't really give a shit uh, and they put so much effort into popularising their sort of Facebook groups thing that to to now pull the rug out from under all those wacko like middle class mums that are propping up the QAnon phenomenon that would kind of rob them of a lot of their audience and they rely on that audience to sell shit to advertisers. It's also a bit of a black box I don't know if you've seen the, the documentary The Social Dilemma, a lot of the stuff that's mm-hmm. in it stuff that I'd Sadly, I already knew because of my profession, but um, like it's, it's such a like the algorithms work in such a way that's that you can't. Prof- your your professional is a right wing militia. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the algorithms work in such a way that they can't control them. It's a black box that they just have no fucking. They don't even truly understand how they work anymore because they've evolved to learn so much. Kind of mm. kind of Skynet in a weird way, but yeah, I think that's a bit more true of YouTube. Than we actually um, we're rewatching X Files. Uh, and the episode we watched last night had a central operating system of a... Uh, so the cash line? The cash line is like gone. No, no, it's of a high-rise, the office building. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah And it yeah. kills it, the um, the new CEO because the CEO wants to shut it down. The and ghost it's, machine. Um, it's, yeah, that's the, the episode is The Ghost in the Machine, 1994. It's funny, they were like, we won't reach the stage of artificial intelligence for decades. And... Uh, Oh shit! <laughs> <Hang on. laughs> this is a big scattered start to this episode, but oh, the X Files yes. is fun because when you go back through the X Files, even though it seemed totally fun and acceptable and kind of harmless at the time, dabbling with all those conspiracy theories is actually some of it's the kind of stuff that's associated with some really heinous yeah, yeah, mindsets totally. now. Mm. Yeah, it really mm. is. 
I was going to re- on the on the topic of Facebook. I was going to recommend a podcast I've been listening to, which is a two parter uh, on Mark Zuckerberg, and it's a podcast called Behind the Bastards. And it's all about the it's a brilliant yeah, show. It's all about yeah, the yeah. bastards of history. Yeah. Uh, those two episodes were phenomenal. Um, and on the YouTube point you made, there, Chris, do you know that like a lot of people will no longer mention COVID nineteen or pandemic or coronavirus because it ought YouTube automatically demonetizes videos because the algorithm picks up the words and just bins it. That's mad. I mean, nobody's paying us fuck all anyway. So yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> nah, you're fucked anyway. You put you put other people tunes in our thing. Some so, of the, so, yeah, so. Like, they don't they don't know what way to ban us. They don't know if we're far left terrorists. They don't know if we're far right terrorists. Libertarian terrorists. Islamic terrorists. They're just I've got no idea. We're dropping all of these phrases in. <laughs> I think getting getting banned from YouTube is definitely our final solution. Hey, and talking. I just did the accidental Holocaust joke in there, Mark. I had, had to get, had to get all the bases keep, covered, man. Like, keeping us edgy. <laughs> so I guess there's, there's definitely a segue from um, the X Files and mid '90s alt heroes uh, to <laughs> what we're doing. This I went away just a general paranoia, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I, I was going to say that. Yeah, I was going to say a bit more like. Paranoia, nihilism, that kind of thing is yeah, more absolutely. associated with Tom York. Uh, this week, we're going to cover Tom York and we're going to try and avoid talking about Radiohead yeah. largely. Because it's Radiohead. Because <laughs> who, who gives a fuck? So much has been said about them. This is my choice. I'm probably going to have to do a wee bit of arguing for this one because Tom York and Radiohead and anything associated with them is fairly high profile and highly praised anyway. But I think this is underrated in the same way as like maybe Downward Spiral. It's still it's high profile, but it's still not maybe given the credit it deserves. Uh, this is The Eraser, the 2006 album by Tom York. His first sort of full solo outing, released in Excel recordings. I, I mean, I realised when I was researching this, I didn't actually know a hell of a lot about Tom York. Um, but, I mean, that, that's kind of cool. I mean, it's sort of good that Radiohead are a band where you don't really need to know much about the people in the band. Mm-hmm. Um, he was born in Northamptonshire in 1968, which is only a year after Kurt Cobain. It just occurred to me, I was like, ah. Uh, he moved to Fife and stayed there until he was seven. Explains a lot. Was, <laughs> About Fife or about Tom York? Both. Um, <laughs> then he moved down to Oxfordshire, which is where he's more commonly associated with. Uh, he went to the Abingdon School and he met the other Radiohead guys there. He, after he went going to school there, he went to the University of Exeter, not not Oxford. Um, there was a little comment about it. I think he tried to get into Oxford, but he just didn't get anywhere in the application process and he said it would have eaten him alive. Uh a couple other things about Tom York. Let's think trivia. Okay, guy's got a lazy eyelid. Is it his left eye? I think it's his left eye, yeah. Uh, as a result of a series of operations, the last one of which I think was kind of botched um, to try and treat a paralysed left eye that he'd been born with. Uh, he dances funny on stage. He's a highly opinionated man um, and generally seen as being a bit serious. He's been married twice, including to, uh, to a, an artist called Rachel Owen, who died in 2016 of cancer. He's got a son called Noah and a daughter called Agnes uh, with Rachel Owen. He also has a brother called Andy from a band called Unbelievable Truth, who were about in the 90s. And he's a vegetarian. There you go. 
call me your trivia rundown you guys know all of that stuff yeah cool well, well that's been so. a great episode guys uh, should we just <laughs> yeah. uh, wrap up and come back next week <laughs> uh, he was given a guitar when he was about seven years old his hero was at that stage was Brian May and accordingly when are he you came, suggesting that Brian May is not still his hero <laughs> uh, accordingly when he was 10 he made a guitar I'm assuming with someone not just this like industrious little 10 year old out there chopping down trees <laughs> but uh, made his own guitar uh, he says that uh, Susie and the Banshees concert was the first time he ever got the urge to become like a live performer uh, so yeah big fan of Susie and the Banshees I've always associated Radiohead that band that he's in that I said they wouldn't mention with R.E.M. Uh, he's a big fan of Pixies a big fan of Depeche Mode he was involved in music really really early on uh, in quite a sort of in-depth fashion I mean he met Ed O'Brien when he was at high school because he was scoring the adaptation the school adaptation of Midsummer Night's Dream I wish I think like when we were doing school plays w- was any student <laughs> entrusted with any sort of role that they were scoring no <laughs> absolutely not but I just seem to remember a really hateful old piano teacher that we had and she'd just sit and play through it and shout at people and glare at them. We did have a student like a couple of years older than us who actually wrote some of the plays. She was like always very talented. And she went I bet on she was she, murder. Nah, she was great. Um yeah. she did end up going on to uh, co produce the Inbetweeners movie. <laughs> so there you go. Nice. But yeah, nobody was ever associated with the music because um we had well yeah our our music teacher was um eccentric even, eccentric weaver's band <laughs> weaver's band played the soundtrack to a streetcar named desire <laughs> <laughs> yeah in the style of no fx <laughs> just what the world uh, uh, he, tom york took a year out after he finished school to try and become a professional musician he sent his first solo demos of him I think when he was 16 or 17 and one of the reviews that he got compared them to Neil Young he said he didn't know anything about Neil Young at the time and he went back and started getting into him he bought After the Gold Rush I think that was the first thing he got and I've actually I think a long time ago I heard a version he'd done it like I mean, he does a really good job of that song With a full moon in my eyes I was hoping for a placement it really suits his vocal style, um, but if you get a chance to look up Tom York's cover, I don't know if he's ever done a proper, proper studio recorded one, but you can find live versions of it, it's really, really nice. At uh, Exeter University, he was performing with a classical ensemble, he was doing kind of experimental compositions with them, and he also performed at that point in a band called Headless Chickens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wonder where they are now <laughs> um, and at this stage he already had a few Radiohead songs in the tank some of the early ones which I'm guessing probably appeared in Pablo Honey at the time like in Radiohead's first incarnation they were calling themselves On A Friday because that was the only day they could practice and they got signed by Parlophone when they were called that and changed their name after they'd been signed So, 
I know I'm making jokes about trying to avoid them completely. You just can't talk about Tom York without going into Radiohead a wee bit. Uh, obviously, their first album, Pablo Honey, which I think is dog shit, uh, but had creep on it, which was a huge moment for them. Got them in the front of, was it Melody Maker? Were they in front of Enemy at that point? I can't remember. Uh, Tom York, even looking back, says that you know, at that stage he bleached his hair, he started wearing extensions in it as well, inexplicably, and says he was just a total insufferable arsehole <laughs> when he went back to Oxford after the band started to break. He said he just, he, he would hate to have met himself at that stage because he was so obnoxious. Uh, although quite soon after that he started to really feel the pressure of being successful, especially with the band were, were kind of getting leaned on by uh, Parlophone to follow the success of that song Creep. Um, they toured with R.E.M. after the second album, after the Benz came out, I think it was, and he became quite friendly with them and Michael Stipe and got a lot of pretty pretty useful advice, especially given how big Radiohead ended up getting. Uh, he started to kind of impose his own artistic voice really loudly when it came time to start working on OK Computer, which obviously went on to be just a total era-defining record, um, arguably changed the course of indie music, full stop. So yeah, he was he was very outspoken in that process. The band were all involved, but he was he was really trying to make sure that they didn't become some conformist, predictable indie landfill, which I think was a kind of fairly common and fairly relevant term at the time. Mm-hmm. Well, I you mean, know. now it's middle of Britpop, so we've talked about that. Yeah, and, exactly. And yeah, to kick off, they were kind of lumped in with that a little bit. I mean, even Muse had the common sense to veer away from being a Radiohead covers band pretty early on mm-hmm. to avoid that trap. Yeah, and again with Tom York's sort of his, his eccentricities and his sort of idiosyncrasies started to manifest themselves and I think his taste in music as well. He was really an FX twin. really into uh, they played a big part in terms of how Kid A and Amnesiac in 2000-2001 ended up sounding the way they did and I think this period really informs what we're going to talk about in his solo career because at that point you can hear that Radiohead becomes less an indie band and the notion of Tom York as a really strong art- artist, a really, uh, a really influential musician in the making, mm-hmm. it, that all starts to really congeal I think and yeah, so Kiddy was such a, a risk and a radical departure. And that whole electronic glitchy deconstructed approach starts to become a big, big feature of it and that never really goes away, although it does get dialed down a bit again after that period. Um, but yeah, really, it really shows his more uh, eclectic influences behind the scenes. I mean, I, again, with Tom York's solo career as well, one of the other things that people associate Radiohead with is their sort of acrimonious relationship with the music industry. Mm-hmm. That's really bled into his career. Uh, we'll touch on that when it comes to how his albums were released and how and when they were available. But yeah, I mean, this was all happening at a very pivotal time for music, obviously. Uh, The late 90s, early 2000s, changing nature of digital commerce just had a huge impact on the revenues that were available, had a huge impact on 
how much artistic license people were given because the the margins were were dwindling. It was much easier to get dropped, even if you were big. I mean, we've talked in the past about Futureheads being on tour at the top of the charts when they were dropped. Um, well, yeah, Radiohead and Tom York removed all of their stuff from Spotify in 2013 after he'd gone on quite a tirade against it, um, describing it as the last desperate fart of a dying corpse, su- sort of suggesting it was a rather than being the start of a new era it was the end of the old era I'm not sure how much I agree with him on that Mm. Uh, that's maybe a bigger discussion Uh, I believe the stuff started to reappear in 2016-2017 his solo stuff was back in full in 2017 it's kind of hard to find out any real in-depth information on why he had such a change of heart it just sort of vague allusions to deals that they'd maybe messed around with there was a talk about Radiohead only being available for paid subscription on Spotify therefore being able to actually be compensated properly so you couldn't get it on the free version if you, they were, Spotify were talking about rolling out a version of it where the artists there was like a kind of premium tier yeah. that you could only get these artists if it was in the paid format ultimately they couldn't get that together in their own words the the, the platform couldn't get that together in time for the albums coming out and the, the idea seems to have sort of withered I mean I, have you guys ever heard of any other artists being available on that basis on Spotify? No but the whole the whole thing does ring a bell but I, I can't remember why it was like a couple of months ago I heard it being floated again I think um, I'd, Yeah I I'd, I'd don't to date, I don't think it's a thing. I could be wrong. I'm happy to be proven wrong, but I don't know of anybody that that would apply to. But that was one of the negotiation tactics used by Spotify to try and get them back on side. And I, th- I, th- I think platforms are too busy fighting each other right now for exclusives rather than keeping them for different tiers. Mm. You know, because you've got like stuff that's only on Tidal, etc. So he's he's got a lot of collaborative stuff and the first time I really recall Tom York out with the Radiohead context is when he collaborated with Sparkle Horse for the cover of Pink Floyd's Wish You Were Here. in 1997 on the, a compilation called Come Together which was a, just a whole host of like interesting combined covers it's actually a really really good cover version as well I love that cover version uh, he also did quite famously I think the Uncle uh, collaboration for the track Rabbit in Your Headlights Dave, I'm sure you've got a bit of input in that because that's DJ Shadow, isn't it? Yeah, so it's interesting. Like, I was looking through all the stuff that he'd done. We might go through and discuss which ones are successful and which ones aren't in terms of his collaborations. By all means, yeah. And I think definitely, yeah, Rabbit in Your Headlights from that Uncle Record science fiction that was, like, basically helmed by uh, DJ Shadow. That was, like, a really interesting record in itself, I think we talked about it when we talked about uh, introducing, but it was like a coming together of US hip hop and UK indie, and it was very 90s. There was something incredibly 90s about it. And I think Americans thought it was really cool because they thought Ian Brown was really cool because <laughs> mm-hmm. they hadn't, you know, had to deal with him. Um, and yeah, that rabbit in your headlights is a, a total hi- highlight from that album, which has kind of dated a little bit. But I don't think that track has. I think it's actually it's a really significant track for for other reasons as well because it Tom York at this point was still an indie musician. 
Mm-hmm. You know, he was he was like a Britpoppy, uh, as much as he says he he wasn't a particular fan of Britpop. Uh, this really kind of established him as something a bit more alternative and something a bit more ex- experimental. Uh, I know it's not um, unheard of for people to contribute vocals to things, but it seemed like a very natural fit, and it also was consistent, as I say, with the stuff that he listened to with you know. DG Shadows in there with a taker and Apex Twin and I think you know you'll probably find those records in a lot of people's collections and he was starting to really cement a bit of a stronger identity in that sense uh, some of his other collaborations really um, kind of bolstered that impression and this all I think feeds into his solo career which is much more electronic in nature uh, before we get there there's a, there are a few more collaborations that's maybe worth commenting on he formed a sort of supergroup called Venus and Furs uh, to perform some tunes for the soundtrack of the film Velvet Goldmine Gregor glam rock thing from 1998. Uh, also in the band room was Johnny Greenwood from Radiohead, Bernard Butler of Suede, which is quite a, a sensible choice, and uh, Roxy Music's uh, Andy Mackay. And it was it was Roxy Music songs they were covering, which was kind of in keeping with the with the film itself. He obviously we've spoken in the past about his work with PJ Harvey. Uh, did a number of tracks with her on Stories from the City, Stories from the Sea. Uh, yeah, funnily okay. enough, I think we've actually mentioned. Um, the PJ Harvey tracks before because I think they kind of divide opinion amongst us am I correct in saying (laughs) that Chris you think they're shit and me and Mark really like them for some reason I I don't think they're all shit no I don't think they're all shit obviously we go into this in a bit more depth in the PJ Harvey episode but I do think that sometimes Tom York just comes in and smears poop odd in the windies (laughs) and it's it's really like it's the same trick every time like And it's just yeah, I guess we we haven't mentioned like if anybody hasn't actually heard him, he's pretty famous <laughs> for his falsetto. Falsetto, yeah. Uh, he just he just does Tom York in that, and I just think it's also just it's distractingly Tom York. I don't know if it brings anything to it. I know we disagree on this. I, I just can't explain it. I I just really I love this mess we're in. I just love that track. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is so. the one I specifically dislike. Yeah, see, the I mean, he's, Tom all, York he's also on Beautiful Feeling, and it's just his ghost is there, just kind of, which is way better. R- reverby. I, yeah. um, I don't know I think this mess we're in works because it's like his personality and it's the two of them dueling off each other we'll probably anyway. cover this a little bit when we talk about the album but as Tom Yorkiness is something that irritates <laughs> me as well so. <laughs> which is an issue when it's him <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, he does a sort of similar thing with Bjork Tom Bjork and I think that he's got a few parallels with Bjork actually, I'll come back to that kind of concept I want to touch on after we're finished this wee chunk of his collaborations but uh, yeah, he's, he's he's done bits and bobs with Bjork, they sort of I think Bjork and Radiohead are sort of in the same bracket anyway, loosely Yeah, indie um, legends, beyond indie legends, alternative legends Yeah, uh, we mentioned R.E.M, he's done some live vocals with them he used to regularly appear on stage especially when they were touring but even since then and do the the chorus to the track Ebo the Letter Mm -hmm. 
uh, which was Patty Smith, I think, on the record. Uh, mm-hmm. But he he just steps in, and it's not too bad. Uh, I mean, what was disappointing? I mean, he, he did some live vocals with Portishead at Latitude Festival in 2015, and he did them on the Rip, which had me all kinds of pitching a tent when I found out about it, and mm. I was really looking forward to hearing that. And it, the concept is a lot better than the execution, to be honest. Um, he sort of joins Beth Gibbons in, in the verse, and then they start to double. Tom York's not a harmonising singer; it doesn't it doesn't work like that. Plus, for whatever reason, in this occasion, he decides to go sort of baritone bass, mm-hmm. and that's definitely not his optimum range either. And so that that live collaboration really jarred with me. I mean, I think it's cool if you were at Latitude, you're like, all right, cool. I saw Tom York come on stage at Portishead. Sweet. Uh, I like that song so much. I think. On the balance, I would have been actually a bit miffed. I'd have been like, no, I'd rather have heard a good version of that song because it's, <laughs> cause it's majestic than the novelty of seeing Tom York saunter out. But uh, yeah, that doesn't really work for me. Um, he, I think, had some pretty good uh, results with Mode Selector. He's done a couple of tracks with them, uh, Shipwrecked, and a track called This. One was 2011, one was 2012. I think this is really good. Yeah, both good songs. I like them both. Shipwreck, though, I mean, it just sounds like Mode Selector is has literally just gone, I need to make a backing track for a Tom York song. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not massively sold on that one, but I do think this was really good it yeah. worked really well Burial he did that sort of super project with Burial Forte and himself mm-hmm. what are your thoughts on that um, there's Bits and, uh, there's not a huge amount of personality of each of them. I don't know. It's less than the sum of its parts. Definitely. Interesting. Uh, how do you feel about his... I mean, these are all artists you've either nominated or professed an admiration for. What about the Flying Lotus stuff? Well, that I was mean, on the album we picked, so... Yeah, wonky as fuck. Like, yeah. they've just added... He's not doing a just a normal Tom there. That's weird Tom. Mm-hmm. I think it works. I like That's the idea track. that there is a normal Tom York. Well, know. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and, but, I know, I think, I, and Flying Lotus is, like, another one of these legit alternative interesting artists, you know, up there with Radiohead and Bjork. I think there's a lot of Flying Lotus on his, on his solo stuff. Mm-hmm. I agree. I think it's more of a kind of broad influence, though, of a new generation of sort of indie electronic musicians and a certain approach. Again, I'm, I'm, this is literally the next thing I want to come to, actually, so uh, I'll, I'll go back to that. Did either of you hear the stuff he did with Mark Pritchard?
yeah um i actually i really like that record that he did well the one that beautiful people is on is a really good album and i really like that track and he's done a few other things but that's like the standout to me that song uh beautiful is it, people is it a good version of the marlon manson classic because <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's yeah. that's what i'm hearing yeah, I mean it's it's Tom with prosthetic tits. Uh, it's a classic. <laughs> um, no, Mark Pritchard's a really interesting. Like Mark Pritchard will be somebody that has influenced Tom York, no doubt. He's on Warp, and he's like been doing sort of techno in Chicago house since the nineties. Yeah, I, I feel like Tom's at that stage where he is obviously hugely influential on other people through his band, but he is getting to work with artists that he has been influenced by. Mm-hmm. And it's like a, a very um, give-and-take relationship. Yeah, he definitely gives the impression of still being a bit of a student when it comes to the electronic side of things. I think mm-hmm. he's seen as being the, the sensei in the indie rock, experimental indie rock world, but electronically you can hear that he's still learning the, the craft a bit uh, across his own stuff. Um, and I mean, a, a collaboration that we have to mention is Atoms for Peace. Uh, they had one album that came out in 2013 and included in the band is Flea from the Chili's uh, and what's his name, Jay Warrenecker, the guy from plays the drums with Beck and R.E.M. There's somebody else involved in it as well. Maro Rafosico from uh, Foro in the Dark. I don't know who that is, but... Good New York-based collective of Brazilian expatriates. They're Sounds like a fucking yeah, brilliant. In- interesting sort of it- percussive jazz mad combo. Yeah, I mean, that actually it started as a a way to do the Eraser album that we're talking about live in 2009. I actually noticed that the, the, the Amok record gets pretty tough time and I, I don't know I, I think it's actually not too bad at all it's got some really nice moments um, I think it starts really strongly with that uh, Before Your Very Eyes track um, there's some beautiful tones on it I mean it's got synths on it but the synths on it feel a lot more played and a lot less programmed and they feel a lot more analogue and organic they, they, they don't have this sort of laminated sheen that a lot of stuff mm. does have in, mm-hmm. in his catalogue it feels like a band to me and as a result I felt there was a bit more energy and a bit more there was a lot more variation in tempo and mood in the songs that's maybe because there's other Musicians involved as well. Um, the textures were quite diverse. I, 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 I don't know. I was surprised I, to see you got such a. a I a like that record, but I, I, funnily enough, my notes are pretty much the opposite. I think that it doesn't sound enough like a band. I think mm. that much like his solo stuff, and as a fault, it's basically it is a follow up to a razor because it's the live band for it trying to m- make something themselves, mm. and I think. But uh, Eraser's kind of, uh, but Eraser's kind of altered, whereas that's more of a collaborative thing. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And but I, th- I don't think it sounds like it is a band. I think the album's fine. But whereas Eraser maybe sounds dry and disconnected for the better, I think this sounds the same, but doesn't make enough of the band. I don't think there's enough space in the production. It doesn't sound like the instruments are in a room. I don't think it's got that live energy. 
Well, I think there are some really nice bits on it. There's some like nice video game sounds on Ingenu. track the bass comes in on the track dropped and I th- I'm just like oh I want more of that because once it happens I'm like noticing that it's missing on a lot of the other stuff I think it's a good record and I think it kind of basically is a follow up to the Eraser in terms of sound mm. I but see I, I find that the Eraser are not altogether much darker and more introspective enterprise than this I don't I don't get that, that this album was in fact quite the opposite I think because there's multiple people working together it's quite an outward looking record I, I, I don't mm. particularly class the two of them together I mean we're both taking away something really different from it basically the idea was he had the music written and then they had to play it and then it was edited together so that's probably why it sounds both organic and unorganic because it's basically studio sessions that have been made into full so- made into songs as opposed to just being like full songs recorded together yeah so it's not a band in the studio together it's mm. like completely built through editing even mm. though the music was all played from stuff that Tom York had written yeah so it's sense. different interpretation it's different players but it's mm. not reactive in real time so therefore mm. it's going to have a weird kind of Frankenstein quality to it I guess yeah. um, and I get that this kind of this sort of deviation kind of brings me on to something I was trying to really hard to put my finger on about Tom York's solo stuff in, in particular and I've got it written in my notes under the heading Cold Futurism hear me out there's a definitely there's, there's an emerging trend in production and we just talked about Flying Lotus uh, I would say people like Arca Um, even even the, the, the trends in pop music uh, for people like FKA Twigs, um, you've got people like One of Tricks Point Never, Hacks and Cloak. Some of the production techniques uh, that go in in parallel with the technological developments with processing power with synth plugins, software I think there's been the development of a very cold and very I would say slick because slick's a bit of a trope put it this way right stereo so if we go almost. back if you, even that I don't I don't want to say that no because I don't think stereo stereo is too pejorative I'm just trying to like think of a kind of aesthetic description of it so basically if you, if you take like the Jay Dilla approach to this sort of chopped up glitchy beat based music okay and then you look at the contrast now and I know things aren't going to stay the same but it really highlights when you listen to some of the later Tom York stuff um, how uh, how much of this is taking place inside the processor how just just how much of this this music is a completely abstract universe you know it's all algorithmic uh, the the way it's created and what emerges is something that really feels it's super refined I think like both in the palettes and in the tones that are available to the artists there's almost a smooth uh, sort of CGI'd quality to it if I was to try and sort of depict it I would say it it reminds me a little bit of the Uncanny Valley exactly aspect thinking, of yeah. you know in um, you know an iRobot you know the yeah. way the robots are animated and that, that slick sort of CGI sort of rendered thing or like the, remember the cars in Minority Report 
this isn't shit, but it's got an inhuman clinical. It's, it's synthetically perfect, yeah. but it isn't organically yeah. imperfect. There's, there's no ghost in the machine. Yeah, yeah there's, yeah. there's there's a 3D sort of rendered precision to it, and the sense I get around that is that there's a, a level of just obsessive control over these tones. There's very little sort of feels left to chance on it. Um, yeah, I think. I mean, I think last month we talked about Burial, who pretty much avoids that completely exactly. because it's all yeah. about imperfection and yeah absolutely i totally get what you're you're talking uh, about here so mm-hmm. so when i when i listen to those kind of producers i'm i'm trying to entertain them on a kind of cerebral level especially as i've got friends who are producers and they're just so in awe of these people and just like they're fantastic and that's great i can really appreciate the skill that's involved in it but i also feel there's such a, an amount of restraint exercised in that music it, it's just I feel very unsatisfied by that approach, even even to electronic music. I mean, it is definitely possible to do electronic music without it feeling so synthesised, excuse the pun. Um, I mean, if you take, like, the 80s, so let's say, like, the 80s was the era of big tunes and melody was, like, a really undergirding aspect of all those songs. I mean, sometimes to the point of absurdity, the melody was just so huge that it was, like giving you musical diabetes just by listening to it. And we all, you know, we love that. You know, we're, we're teasing people about doing an, an ABBA mixtape, for God's sake. But, um, you know, that melody, that deep-rooted sort of need for a melodic shift and a payoff, an emotional payoff, and a wee bit of emotional manipulation that's not too subtle. The subtlety of it, maybe, that's a, that's a useful word in this case. That's not really there anymore with this this form of electronic music. Like, everything is so subtle that what you get with a lot of Tom York's later stuff is it's it's very, very difficult to work out what the fucking tune is. You can mm-hmm. hear the vocal, right? But a, a, a single melody line on its own doesn't achieve much. You don't really get anything until you get the harmonies. You know, unless you're just going for purely percussive, sort of very... Uh, stripped back maybe often quite sort of ancestral type music you know but if you're go- if, if you're trying to construct modern melodies yet you, you make it almost a challenge for your listener to find where that the, the harmony and the chord and the the collision and the the, the interplay is there i don't know it feels it feels a very modern trend and i miss it i think it like that the, the willingness to just sometimes engage in a big chord and a big hook is a very 80s thing it's a very human thing it's yes it's a bit obvious yes it's a bit ott at times and i think tom york has got so cerebral about some of his music that he's he's sort of left that behind but i think he's left it behind too much yeah now, it's funnily enough you mentioned a couple of artists there like one of tricks point never and arca and i actually think that they do that they fucking love a big obvious chord sometimes they don't necessarily like a big obvious structure but i would completely agree with you in terms of tom's second and third albums yeah i mean it feels it feels sometimes like his voice which is often brilliant and he still writes some very nice melodic vocal lines but it's like it's wafting over a bunch of like hollow polygons like he very rarely fills in the surfaces of those polygons with a chord or an instrument or a pad or anything that gives you like a real bit of traction emotionally you could, you could also maybe say this funnily enough about Bjork's last two records I, well this is exactly what when I said I think they've got a few things in common this is what I find with Bjork when I'm listening to Bjork as much as again I really admire a lot of the skill and the ability and the originality I only really enjoy Bjork and I'm using the word enjoy specifically there I only really enjoy listening to Bjork at times because Mm -hmm. the rest of it is quite an academic process for me.
then every so often there's something that'll pick out that's really like relates to me on an animalistic level and I almost feel it's part of like Tom Tom York's philosophy like he's he's trying to sort of disengage from the animalistic obvious route pandering to his sort of baser nature but one of the reasons that I think Eraser works is because he's not quite completed that transition yet so yeah. when you then go in to talk about his other albums like Eraser has big chords sometimes actual moments of real bombast in it even though it's not exactly loud compared to other bands you know what I mean like there's a big definitive moment of melodic consensus between all these different instruments and it really works you get a payoff even if you've gone two and a half minutes without it it compounds the the impact of of that melodic arrival but tomorrow's modern boxes the record did in 2014 I would describe it as a particularly tuneless affair Right, I think it's very clever. Um, I think there are moments in it, like the, the the second track in it, Guess Again, has this great piano motif that, that goes through it. And it's a piano motif that you feel could develop into something that's really quite special. But then in, in the chorus, he willfully goes for these very pastel-coloured chords that, that are really disappointing. And then the, the kind of bass melody, the interplay, never really arrives. So you have this quite sort of conceptually impressive, like, oh, that was, that was quite a cool bit. But it, it didn't ever fulfil its potential. I think this happens a lot. Uh, the mother load on that is like a weird version of like hipster UK garage. Mixed with like a, elements of circus, I, I, I don't really get it. And the vocals on it are, are very benign. There's no through message of, of melody for you to really latch on to. Yeah, um, funnily enough, like I was really excited to do this episode because I was like, oh, do you know what? I've never given All Tomorrow's Boxes or even Anima a chance. So maybe I'm going to go find something I really like. And then I went back and listened to All Tomorrow's Boxes. And can I, I just remember, say that, uh, hang on, can I just stop you? All Tomorrow's Boxes, is that a Tom York album that took your ticket money and then went out of business and fucked off? <laughs> hey, very good. <laughs> Tomorrow's Modern Boxes. To- uh, shit, yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I actually wrote All Tomorrow's Boxes. Fuck. <laughs> Getting <laughs> hipsterized and metad. Uh, um, anyway, that record, I-, I think I actually did give it time when it came out and just didn't ever listen to it again because it's fucking boring <laughs> totally it's <laughs> like it, i gave exactly. it the chance it, re- it deserved the thing is it's on paper impressive but it just it doesn't have any sort of real humanity to it i think like mm. one of the best examples is track five two three Which has what is potentially a really nice vocal, and then not no song to back it up. Mm-hmm. And I just, I just get so much of this sense of overthinking. It's quite high concept, and it really does, to some extent, represent the things I dislike about a lot of modern electronica. Um, and I, I mean, sometimes just can't relate to it at all. Anima in twenty nineteen 
I think he's slightly better. Um, I think the, the second track in that last I heard brackets, he was circling the drain. It's some really nice textures on it. It's got a really interesting, again, interesting use of like choppy vocals as percussion. Um, it's got a suitably kind of spooky main theme, but again, it's a song that you're like, oh, this could really, I can imagine how this could end in a sort of really sees itself through, but it doesn't. I mean, it, it, it goes somewhere, but I just feel where it ends up is just is, is not where it should have been. Um, it's probably the best example though of songwriting on that record, I think. Um, the, the third track in it, Twist, is it's cold, it's clever. But I just again feel that that and a lot of the songs after are just a bit emotionally dead. And that that, that just sums up Tom York's electronica to me. It's very chin strokery. It's very like, oh, that's that's a very used. Yeah, I really that's like pl- the arpeggiator on there, but yeah, that's a clever yeah. plug-in. Oh, the gate workers. And it's like, okay, yes, as producers, you're all very impressed by this, but like, what the fuck is this music? Like, like this guy's capable of of combining these two factors: the production, the originality, with the the, the we should also mention that a lot, well, all his stuff is in collaboration with Nigel Godrich. Yeah. Like, in terms right, yeah. of production as well. So I'm always intrigued to see actually how hands-on Tom is in terms of going in with a song structure and then coming out with a perfect wav, how much mm-hmm. Nigel mm-hmm. was involved and what, what their working partnership is like, actually. You know, I don't know if you guys did any time on the Suspiria soundtrack. It's frankly not a good record. It's, it's actually... No, it's not pretty fucking shite for most yeah. of it like yeah, it's, for the most what part it really <laughs> yeah what it really is is a vessel for the track Suspirium which is just a reminder of just how fucking beautiful a songwriter this guy is when he wants to be. Yeah. Not that all these tracks have to be very stripped-back piano ballads with him crooning over them, I don't mean that, but to combine those elements, they are there. He obviously loves melody, he obviously loves that After the Gold Rush moment, or Pyramid Song, videotape, all the things that that Suspirium track really calls to mind. Um, did it, was it an Emmy or an Oscar? I mean, that got nominated for something, and it is recognised as being a really high point of his recent work mm-hmm. um, I'm just it's just a shame that he doesn't visit it more often I think All is well, as long as we keep spinning it's, it's worth it's worth saying as well man that uh, anima was as like as highest rated album oh by by some way yeah okay. it's pretty uh-huh. incredible that but again, that seems consistent, I think, with the kind of quite subjective and sort of almost uh, arbitrary approach that some reviewers and publications take to Tom York's work. If they feel that he's getting a bit too big for his boots, he brings out an album like Eraser, which is excellent, and they give him 6.5 out of 10, and then he goes away for a while, 
and they've got nothing else to write about so the, he brings out an inferior album and they give it a much higher rating and I think it just it's mm. part and a parcel of the sort of Emperor's New Clothes effect and there's yeah that, there's also that, just that part of the, press. the Pitchfork etc just have some artists that they'll never you know they have sacred cows they'll never bring down Tom York or Bjork or Burial because they're too too cool for school and it's part of the brand. maintain their brand yeah. it's, it's all yeah. about the brand it's like mm-hmm. oh yeah we've got to appreciate that and go to uh, Primavera and blah 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 you know it's not actually about how good that record is yeah so I, th- I think what makes the Razor a wee bit special is that it does have that Goldilocks balance of the sort of kiddie experimentation and choppiness and weirdness and unsettling flavours but he's still got the willingness to commit to strong moments of melody and payoff and have that give and take with the audience that I think he, he loses later on in his solo stuff um, I think like a lot of kind of breakaway or solo albums, departures from a main, a big main project. It's got that kind of naive, tentative feel, like it's been germinating for a while, like he's had these songs, couldn't get them to work with his band, and he's finally got a chance. But because they've been sitting there for longer, they've matured slightly in a way that other stuff, if you're able to just put it to tape six weeks after you wrote it, doesn't get the chance to do. So we'll take a, a wee a quick tour through it. It's only nine tunes. Mark, had you heard the record before? I had not heard it before, no. I had not heard anything any solo stuff by him at all because I can really take or leave Radiohead and I can really 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 take or leave his voice <laughs> um, and did not like Kiddie very much or Amnesiac so yeah it was interesting getting into this there's things I liked about it there's things I liked I, about I, a lot of his work actually but most of it's I, contained in this this album yeah I don't think this is a, a flawless album I actually think that the opening track's one of the weaker tracks on it The Eraser um I mean, I think it's there for impact in terms of, wow, this is a different sound. So it's probably been chosen to sort of get that clear from the outset. Totally, yeah. It's uh, kind of um, organic but because it's, cause it's got a played piano loop, but it's obviously not organic. And I, I feel it's like a nice middle ground about like trying to bring you into yeah. this. So by the way, yeah. we're, we're still a bit radio-heady here, but we're not quite what you think we're going to be. But also yeah. having listened to his later records and then go back to this, just the addition of real instruments, even though they're sampled and chopped up, Mm-hmm. gives it humanity that those later records don't have mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, the thing about this song that doesn't really entirely click for me is that uh, it has a slightly diminished jazzy feel, mm-hmm. it's obviously delivered in a, a, a totally different manner but it's got a sort of slightly lounge vibe to the to the melody that I think is just a little bit too watery As an opening song, it totally works. It gets you into the right space, and I don't think this album is about the opening song, but this album is about things like track to analyze. Which, for Tom York's career, and is is a huge moment. I think it's one of the best things he's worked on. I think it channels a lot of the melancholy that Radiohead do in their best moments. Totally. Uh, yeah, I mean, c- his vocal melody 
just could be on okay computer on this mm-hmm. straight in with that vocal as well which is a nice touch like the song just starts there's nothing no preamble no intro no fade in anything it's just it's quite a quite a cool way to do it um it's beautifully arranged as a song it sounds quite mature the way it ascends as well his singing is very exposed in it there's not a lot of effects on it i mean i'm sure there's some subtle carefully controlled gated reverbs and stuff but it's not ob- it's not overbearing um there's a great moment at about a minute 45 when the big string pads start yeah, to come in in that song makes it feel epic Huge, absolutely mm-hmm. huge, um, and yeah, and I think it's also got a really nice sort of mournful, elegant outro. This actually was used in the closing credits of the film, The Prestige, the Christopher Nolan film, and oh, it's yeah, good film. It's is, it is, well, it's a probably Christopher Nolan's best film, I think, and it's also one of the best moments of soundtracking that I've I've heard. That I saw that film in the cinema, and this coming in, it just so perfectly fitted the mood yeah. the, me- the melancholy, the, the way that that film leaves you hanging, uh, it, it was brilliant and him coming straight in with a vocal no intro, nothing, it's, it, it really worked brilliantly um, it's, it feels dead paranoid when the bass comes in around 220 and it, feels, it starts to feel quite apocalyptic and this record, as is Tom York's kind of milieu I guess is quite apocalyptic, it's quite paranoia like, mm-hmm. like based in like sort of fear and a real weariness of like mo- the modern world which is ironic given he's doing electronica but <laughs> mm. um, track three the clock in this is another really strong one I love the, the, the use of the chopped up vocals. This is one of the ones where they used old Radiohead samples and things in it. Uh, the, the percussive track in this is really innovative. It's really good. The song also feels kind of fast because the percussion's busy, but the tempo's mm-hmm. quite slow. Mm-hmm. Like it's like a driving feel. Yeah, the, but the singing and the tempo, the percussion don't match, but they do marry, if that makes sense. Opposites mm-hmm. attract in a weird way. Again, I never really so noticed uh, the sort of Eastern influence on it. Some sort of like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And two of the best moments of that are actually just after the two minute mark and again at the 3.30 minute mark where he changes the roots with these big mm-hmm. powerful bass roots mm-hmm. that come in that, that shift the, the, the melody. This is exactly what I'm saying is missing from some of his other work. It's where he's filling out that polygon, you know, it's, it's where that suddenly everything has mass and weight, and the, the other music never really gets that, that emotional weight. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I think it's a great song. Uh, Black Swan. really druggy kind of electro indie thing it's, it's a great bridging track between the two careers you know between this electronic thing and the radiohead stuff it's yeah, interesting it's, like, it's talk- a good riff that, hip, yeah, that, you, that beat is a hip-hop beat it totally is a hip-hop yeah, beat yeah definitely see uh, nigel godrich um apparently helped him cut this down from well over nine minutes so his <laughs> thing was that tom york used to send them samples and godrich would go through it all and and sort of 
throw things away and trim them and stuff like that. And he, he describes this as originally being nine minutes load of bollocks, <laughs> <laughs> which he helped kind of like carve down into this. And it's 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 a great bit of music. Well, it's um, interesting if Nigel is basically the editor. It seems yeah. like yeah, he's, he's something of a muse in that sense that he's like, send me your stuff and I'll I'll give you some critical mm-hmm. feedback and we'll knock it into shape. Uh, was it Skip Divided? The track? Skip Divided, um, yeah. I think it's the most radical song, the most radical departure on the record. Um, I mean, he it drops into the falsetto. I love uh, that. I prefer his voice when it's lower. I, I really like his voice yeah. like this, yeah. yeah. <laughs> See, the, this is like obviously two tracks back to back in the middle here, a wee bit of a lull where it gets very much purer in its electronic credentials. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is the weaker of the two. I think this track hints at kind of colder, later music. Uh, it's technically very competent but it doesn't musically reward me in a big way but the thing is it's it's buttressed by so much good melody that it's totally acceptable in the context it's a bit yeah i feel like it works as a segue more Um, track in itself and happens for peace that follows it which is obviously the the inspiration for the name of the band Is s- similarly quite technical, but this time with a lot more humanity and warmth in it. Yeah, it's a major um, key, right? So it feels a lot more. It feels like it's got a lot more life to it because of yeah, that. even a bit of humour. I mean, this, this is definitely most indebted to mid nineties Aphex Twin, but it really works. I like. Mm-hmm. I wrote like because w- it's in a major key. It could sounds like it could be in a weird nineties kids TV show somehow. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be a weird fucking show. Well, it? these things um, happened. The one thing about that song... Some sort of Cornish. Scooby don't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the one thing uh, about that song I hated was see when that, that high-pitched tone comes in at the end, I couldn't listen to it. for some reason that frequency just really hurt my head yeah <laughs> um, I mean it, it's got some memorable vocals in it one of the things I like about that song as well is they must have thought this is a bit too clean and the, so there's a sort of layer like a transparency of glitchy noise that's been mm-hmm. put over it that's actually really effective and mm-hmm. it's it's a bit subliminal because you don't realise why that song feels quite coarse and it's mm-hmm. because if you listen back there's a lot of like static and stuff that's been mm-hmm. added to it um, and it rained all night so I Probably the closest to kind of Hail to the Thief era Radiohead, I think. One of the most pessimistic songs on it, it's quite sinister. Uh, it has this really lethargic, sort of shimmering pad that, that kind of washes over things a bit asynchronously. It doesn't really match with the, the uh, percussion, but... I feel like it's... Nice- it's, it feels nice, but or not nice, it feels interesting, but it's maybe the one with the least interesting hook or the least memorable lines in it, I think. This is the track that whenever I hear it, I go, oh, I, I kind of forgot about this. 
Like a lot mm. of these tracks, because I I've listened to this album a lot, stay with me. But whenever I hear this one, I'm like, oh yeah, I forgot about this tune. I, I mean, I think the thing is the track, the album is meant to be quite downbeat. It's meant to be quite cynical. The whole King Canute thing on on the front cover, like this tune, I think is quite important in lending it and tipping the the balance in favour of that quite dark atmosphere, that sombre atmosphere. Because as you said yeah. the one before, it's quite major. It works um, thematically. I just yeah. I don't think it stands out as a tune. It's like um, a dystopian disco almost like the bun- the baseline is dead fuzzy but also really bassy mm. and it just feels like it feels like a disco you'd attend at the end of the world after the end of the world <laughs> you know what I mean like in dystopian times that's, that's, how, that's what it reminded me of um, Big Hitter Harrow Downhill mm-hmm. uh, the other single off the album Just a, an absolutely fucking magnificent bit of music. I absolutely love this song. Uh, I didn't actually know this was a single. I just knew that it was probably the best tune in the album and definitely one of the best things I think Tom York's worked on. I mean, just to give a bit of backstory as well, it's added gravitas, I think, because of the theme. It's about David Kelly, um, who tipped off that the information about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq had been falsified, um, and he was later found having committed suicide in in woods um, in Harrowdownhill. Thematically, it's a really interesting song, and I was relieved to, to... read a bit more about it and real and find out that Tom York is not for a minute suggesting it's it's not a conspiracy theory song. Um, there are a lot of conspiracy theories around David Kelly's suicide. You know, Tony Blair had him killed because it was convenient. He was about to go to the press with the news. With Tom York's stance in it, which is one that I would share, having read quite a lot about the David Kelly's sort of state of mind and his backstory, is that he was driven to a, a state of uh, like unsustainable stress mm-hmm. um, and unhappiness and guilt. By the pressure that was put on him by the government, by the Ministry of Defence, all those kind of people that had been that were guilty of the Iraq War, he he took a lot of that on his shoulders and committed suicide. So it, it, I'm relieved that I don't have to surrender this song to fucking some <laughs> stupid Oliver Stone esque bullshit. But um, yeah, yeah, it's he, he describes it as the angriest song that he ever wrote. Uh, thematically, it should maybe have been in Hail to the Thief, given that what that album by Radiohead was about, but it didn't musically work. Um, but it has this beautiful, constant, steady, oppressive nature. And I, like I said, I just think it's one of the best songs of the guy's career. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. a great song. Great song. I love like, the bass line in it, man. I think it's great. Yeah, mm-hmm. bass line's great. That's like another riff, just like Black Swan, that's like kind of got that indie electro vibe. And Absolutely I, I, brilliant. The that, um, we think the same things at the same time, I think is like, that's the best vocal, that's the vocal hook that I get from this album. Like That, that one that actually, it, away. it properly tugs your heart. The delivery, yeah. everything. It's just, it's a real, it's a real bullseye moment. Mm-hmm. Um, then the final song, Symbol Rush. Mm-hmm. 
Simborush actually evolves into something quite complex, but it starts pretty sparse. It's clever, it's dark, it's a bit glitchy. It kind of hints at some of the later Tom York stuff early on, but then it fleshes out, which I think is good. The vocals in it are a little bit more human than these later stuff. Um, that that kind of woozy modulated pad lends the song a lot of the kind of emotional grounding that that vocal needs. And yeah, I think by about two forty five and that it's it's bloomed quite it's mm. quite gently, but it's certainly mm. bloomed into something quite beautiful and has a sort of in rainbows esque little drum part that comes in uh, yeah. for, for the outro. By the way, just before we finish this album as well, I would say that I didn't know this until we did the research, but the best song. From the second disc of In Rainbows is a track called Last Flowers. Uh, and that was actually recorded for these sessions, um, but oh. not included. Um, and that, I had no idea until now. Interesting. Yeah, I like that song. It's, I really love the artwork as well, I just want to say. Oh yeah, yeah, that Canute thing. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's worked with same artists for years as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I think this is a Goldilocks moment for his solo stuff. I think he's he's drifted into some weird digital fucking futurist void now, and I I just can't relate to it. He's 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 melding with the machine, and I, I I'm not really feeling it anymore. But this still pays off. Well, I mean, I pretty much agree with you completely on everything, Chris. So there you go. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's interesting that when this came out in two thousand six, so what I was twenty, this was like a total late night album for me. Living as a lonely student, I think this and DJ Shadow introducing got me through a lot of study sessions in the library. Yeah, so I was kind of, I was a little bit worried about going back to it because I hadn't necessarily listened to it a huge amount since. I just fucking tanned it for about two years when it came out, and I was a little bit worried about looking too closely at it. Much like, you know, looking too close at a pointless painting and yeah, yeah. Uh, losing the the overall beauty of it. But actually, it really made me appreciate it a lot more. And actually, I don't think I'd listen to it in headphones that often. I think it was often just on in the background in my room. And I, I loved the production on it. I loved, like, the sort of the degradation of some of the synth sounds throughout. I think over the, the technical part of it overtook the humanist part, or, or, or yeah, the human part. Uh, on his next two records and yeah while it's it does it is definitely a solo record and it's tightly produced those live instruments or you know samples really do bring it to life and yeah I think I I was very happy to go back to it great record Mark what did you think? I'm glad I listened to it Um, I've always found it very difficult to connect with Radiohead because I I do find his voice very annoying but it's not in this record this record is a completely different beast and I'm, I'm really glad it is so wildly different from what I know of as Radiohead mm-hmm. uh, if, if Radiohead sound like this in other places then please let me know but from what I understand this is quite different and I like that you could probably cherry pick like 12 Radiohead tracks that are close to this there's bits and bobs yeah I mean I still feel that the peak Radiohead was in Rainbows anyway which yeah I agree I think in Rainbows it, is it, the best record so in, in and around here anyway this was a sort of optimum point 
I mean, so yeah, I mean, he, he became the, the Ray Kurzweil of fucking indie rock eventually, or mm-hmm. electro, but this is a nice, this is a nice moment uh, before the wires had completely woven their way through his blood supply. Yeah, so his, his later records left me completely cold and uh, yeah. featureless is what I would say, quite featureless. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure he wouldn't agree. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, okay, cool. Uh, I'm glad, and we'll see what people think about it. Uh, it's time for Nexus. I got a, I got a good one. Going to sprint through it though. The, this is the first time we're seeing Nexus tonight. Will it be the last? What do they have in store for us? Why am I here? You're in the Nexus. This is the Nexus. For you, this is what you want. Okay, go cool. for it. So we have to get to who chose it? Who, who chose So this was Corey Stewart chose Lee Atwater, and oh, Lee yeah. Atwater was a political consultant and strategist, I think is the title for his role. He and is a he does play yes. uh, I think the reason that Corey picked him is because he's also quite a controversial figure. He is the guy that was caught on tape talking about the Southern strategy and the Southern mm-hmm. strategy under Reagan during that campaign was effectively where they sort of stopped using the N word. You know, he was like he made a joke. He made a flippant joke about like you know in the nineteen fifties you could say this. He's like, but now you say things like forced busing or states' rights. It's like we're talking about the same thing. But to be able to have that conversation now, we need to move with the times. And that was basically the Southern strategy. It was like ways to sort of disenfranchise uh, black Americans and sort of keep that repression there, that cultural repression there, without being so overt. Um, but he, he was also just generally quite a Machiavellian figure. Exactly. Of, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it was just... It, Republican right wing. Pure, it was pure real politic, I think, in that sense. Um, yeah. He also was involved in the, the, the Michael Dukakis thing in mm-hmm. 1988, where uh, Michael Dukakis had argued for... What, what is it they call it? They call it furlough, isn't it? From, from jail. And one of the people that got furloughed from jail in this scheme, a guy called Willie Horton, kidnapped a couple, killed a guy, repeatedly raped a woman, and then... Uh, basically Atwater went to town with this and just absolutely destroyed Dukakis' uh, campaign on the back of this. He turned, I mean, he turned around a 17-point advantage or something crazy using using this, which is why he's so famous and notorious. He did say, apparently, on his deathbed that he really regretted. He apologised to Michael He did apologise, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, but yeah, well, it's all very well. Anyway, he a Roman so... Catholic on his deathbed. Uh, <laughs> the safe bet yeah. like a blood to the brain um, so uh, Tom York is in a band called Dabhead with Ed Dab O'Brien <laughs> uh, Ed O'Brien believe it or not now I fucking don't understand why but Ed O'Brien the first single that he ever bought was Ali's Tartan Army which was by <laughs> Game. 
which was by Andy Cameron. I think Ed O'Brien was 10 years old at the time or something. Uh, and it was the the sort of comedy song that went along with Scotland's comedy campaign in the 1978 Argentinian Yeah, but World it wasn't Cup. supposed to be comedy. It was supposed to be serious because we went there with legitimate hopes of getting Absolutely. into the finals. I mean, we had An amazing Kenny Dalglish and Dennis Law and Archie Gemmell. Absolutely. No, incredible team. Um, and it was a, a disaster. But uh, Lost Edo, to Peru, Ed, I believe. Yeah, and Drew won all with Iran. Yep. Um, so Ed O'Brien, despite living in England, said he always supported Scotland. He's not sure why. He's like, I didn't give a shit about the English team. I was just really <laughs> excited about Scotland. Mm. I bought this. This was the first single I ever bought. So Ali McLeod went out to Argentina in 1978. Disaster. Scotland team had Kenny Dalglish in it, as David mentioned. Kenny Dalglish, when he was young, used to get a lift to training by Mr. Alex Ferguson when Alex Ferguson was at Rangers. Uh, Alex Ferguson is apparently a huge buff of the JFK assassination. Uh, and Indeed, he apparently for a long time had a copy of the report that was sent to him by Gordon Brown next to his bed. And he, he also supposedly owns a copy of the Warren Commission report that was signed by Gerald Ford. Wow. So, um, yeah, there you go, Alex Ferguson. Big fan of that. Uh, JFK, the film, the fantastical piece of garbage fiction, was directed by Oliver Stone. Oliver Stone also directed uh, a less garbage film called Platoon, 1986. In the film Platoon, uh, the actor Willem Dafoe at one point says the phrase, lose those, right? As in, like, get rid of this, get rid of that, lose those, okay? Lose those became the name of an operating system based on that, right? Mm. Uh, it It was called Lose those, then it was called the J operating system, then it was called the Sparrow OS, and then it became known as Temple OS, any of you guys know anything about Temple OS? Uh, a little bit through okay. my research <laughs> uh, this week, uh, maybe. No, uh, actually. <laughs> absolutely uh, fucking amazing. So, Temple OS was created by an insane savant fucking maniac called Terry Davis. It, it was basically meant to be effectively the third temple as spoken about in the Bible, uh, Solomon having built the second one after the first one was destroyed uh, Temple OS was like the 64-bit operating system that took this one guy obsessively working on it a decade to, to create from scratch if you imagine that like Windows for example has taken decades to define with teams of hundreds of programmers and engineers this guy did this all himself he was He's a nut job, though. Um, he also, I think it's quite funny because it was all very religious in its themes, which is part of his mental illness. Um, instead of just using C language, he referred to his language as Holy C, which if you know, <laughs> a bit, you know, little schizophrenic pun there. Um, but yeah, Terry Davis had serious problems with schizophrenia. Uh, he was also a mad racist. Uh, he used to post about incest, child porn, child abuse, rape... Uh, he was a homophobe, he was a born-again Christian. As to how much of this was a manifestation of the guy's quite acute mental problems and how much was a personality thing, I think it's really hard to um, sort of disaggregate. I, I can't say the phrase, but he used to use, in a lot of his posts, the phrase CIA N-words. And if you ever go on and look at any of the kind of 4 chan sort of like sites that talk about him, you'll just see this scattered everywhere. It was just such a thing, that, a meme that he, he, he devised in the more extreme ends of the, the internet obviously ran with it. He actually at one point claimed to have run over a CIA N-word um, who he thought was following him. Um, Terry Davis says that his paranoia started to really escalate after he listened to the 
the song "Killing in the Name" by Rage Against the Machine, <laughs> and the line, in, the line in particular, some of those that run forces are the same that burn crosses, got right in there. And I mean, it's just one of those kind of OCD things where he said it just got into his head. Then he became convinced people were following him, and he attributed a lot of it to this song. Um, so Rage Against the Machine uh, in 2000 played outside the DNC, uh, the, the conference in Los Angeles. At that same conference, it was the first one attended by Barack Obama, I believe. Uh, he had just suffered an election defeat and at the conference he tried to pay something with his credit card and it was declined. <laughs> and he had to he had to leave with his tail between his legs past this Rage Against the Machine concert that was taking place outside. Um, in 2008, the Barack Obama campaign was told to stop using uh, a song by the group Sam and Dave called Hold On, I'm Coming. Or is it Hold On, Hang On, Hold On, I'm Coming, I think. This was at the behest of a guy called Sam Moore, one half of Sam and Dave, who is a hardcore card-carrying Republican. He did, however, allow Bob Dole to use the track Soul Man, which he was a writer on, and change it to I'm a Dole Man! <laughs> Had to be done. Every Wednesday I'm out there singing I'm a Dole Man. Um, Hold On, I'm Coming and more appeared on an album titled Red Hot and Blue uh, and actually Sam Moore played on, on those tracks as well and Red Hot and Blue was both the album and the band of Mr. Lee Atwater Very that's, uh, that's my final link as well Well, do you want to go for yours Mark? Uh, yeah so mine is actually a lot more direct Flea was in Atoms for Peace and he's recorded 11 studio albums with uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers including one called Stadium Arcadium uh, which is definitely a double album. I've not actually heard it, but it's bogging. Um, yeah, surprise, surprise. <laughs> Billy Preston plays keys on that on a song on that. Oh, please, sorry, plays clavinet on a song called Warlocks on that, and he also appeared on that same album, uh, that Lee, <laughs> Lee Atwater album. So. I thought you were going to be like uh, they were in a band called Atoms for Peace, and Lee Atwater was made of atoms. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so. Tommy York has said that specifically for his Suspiria um, soundtrack, a major inspiration was Vangelis's 1982 soundtrack for Blade Runner. Blade Runner was directed by a certain Ridley Scott, also well known for Alien and some terrible Alien follow-ups. <laughs> he, in 1984, also directed an advert for Apple telev- for Apple computers. Uh, oh. For the release of the uh, the first Macintosh personal computer, and it was Ridley Scott directed it, and it. Was I hope he got shares and not paid. Like, that that would yeah, be so I much. Know. <laughs> it was like shown at the Super Bowl, and basically, I mean, they said that the advert was basically more successful than the computer. It was <laughs> like this huge dystopian nineteen eighty four esque thing. Nineteen eighty four esque yeah. thing, and I mean, I remember we had those computers in primary school. Uh, they were. You could play Tetris on them. Anyway, um, Apple started and then run by Steve Jobs. Uh, in the late 80s, he actually, there was a sort of power struggle and he left Apple and didn't come back until about 1996, 97, when he sort of relaunched it and invented the iMac and the iPhone and it became the world's first $2 trillion company uh, last month. But in the early 90s, when he wasn't there, it was like a bit of a joke I think at one point, like 97% of personal computers at home were running Windows and only 3% were on on Mac, whereas now it's pretty much the opposite. Anyway, while he was away, he actually ran or founded and helped run another computing company called Next. Yeah, this was like a sort of um, computer and software company. 
he sort of aimed it at unis, higher education, business. It wasn't ever going to be a Windows thing, but eventually, actually, Next operating system became Mac OS X, I believe, or he took over a lot of the technology from it. One of the main investors in Next was Ross Perot, Ross Perrot, Ross Perot. Oh, wow. Yeah, the, the candidate. So he was like a angel investor for Next and one of the, the, the main funders. And Ross Perot was, yeah, a very interesting guy, businessman, billionaire, philanthropist. And in 1992, he got 20% of the popular vote in the presidential election. And some say that he would have got less if Lee Atwater was still the campaign manager for George Bush. However, Lee Atwater had died, George Bush lost to Bill Clinton. Mm-hmm. There you go. Can I just say, I, the guy that I was talking about, Terry Davis, uh, there is so much more, and, and it's a really, really interesting story. It's sad to me, the guy ended up dying by being struck by a train, almost certainly on purpose. Uh, but his story is both astounding and very informative uh, and and really quite relevant I think just to the kind of online world and what it does to people I, I would really really encourage people to look it out there's some great podcasts about them there's one for the BBC it's actually quite short but really good cool so Dave what are we doing next week oh uh, yeah next week well you said we hadn't done any post rock for a while so we're going to do a band called Grails Ooh, which Chris got excited about but then I mentioned the album that we're going to do and it's Deep yeah. Politics which is like their eighth record and uh, assumed you'd hit your head <laughs> it's a fucking um, great record anyway let's battle next week let battle commence <laughs> if I start singing Killing in the Name to you are you going to think people are following you about because I think <laughs> you might be losing it I <laughs> uh, no they're, so, I mean we'll we'll talk about it but yeah yeah rest assured I'm going to bitch my ass off next week about your choice of record <laughs> not, not the band good band Great. Um, okay cool well I guess I'll very quickly pick a nexus let's see who it was it is Curtis Steigers great <laughs> that's picked by Jenny Hogan thanks, thanks for that Jenny alright grills uh, to Curtis Steigers this time next week alright thanks very much everybody keep safe be well bye bye ciao